Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for song that puts not just a melody in our heart, but attaches biblical lyrics to that melody that helps us to sing and realign our hearts to you. And sometimes when we're weary and overwhelmed, discouraged, sometimes even when we're happy and satisfied, but don't have words for it, song directs us and gives us a reason for praising. And so we thank you for the song that we have sung today that has directed our heart towards you. And thank you for the scripture that we have read that does likewise. And thank you for prayer by which we openly place ourselves in submission to you, acknowledging your greatness and our dependence. And would you likewise help us by this word to recognize our dependence on you? And would this word be transformative in us today? And especially would this word make us hopeful? And we commend ourselves to you, for we need your direction, your hope, your strength, your encouragement, your life. And would you grant that to us? To that end, Father, I would also ask that you would give me discernment and clarity, accuracy, precision, to rightly explain this text for us to rightly apply this text to our own individual lives. So would you guide us? This is your time, your word. And would you be honored in our time in it? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Despite our blessed planning, our sincere desires, our extensive efforts, not everything always goes according to plan. That's true at work, that's true in our homes, that's true in our relationships, it's true with our leisure activities, with our retirements, and sometimes it's even true in our churches. Even when churches are loving and hardworking, enduring, truth-teaching, grace-giving churches, things still sometimes go awry. And because of that reality, the Apostle Paul lays out some theological and ministry caution tape, if you will, at the close of his letter to the Roman church. There's a caution tape for the Roman church, and it's a cautionary tale for us as well. As Paul concludes his letter, he gives us one large problem to watch over for and one large problem to guard against so that faithfulness to Christ in the church and by the church will be maintained. We can summarize what the Apostle Paul says in these verses this way. Always be vigilantly attentive against false teaching. Always be attentive to and watch out for and guard against and fight against false teaching. We find that in verses 17 to 20, and in all honesty, that passage just seems to be somewhat out of place. In fact, it seems to be so out of place that a number of commentators have suggested that 
Paul's letter actually ends in verse 16, and verses 17 to 27 is somebody else writing, adding an addendum, and in a sense, messing up Paul's finish. It just doesn't seem to fit. I mean, he's just had this glorious explanation of greetings to one another in the body of Christ in Rome, and all these welcomes and affirmations of the things that God is doing in the Roman church, and and then he comes back to a warning, and it's... It's got a little bit of a harsh tone to it. How does that fit? Surely it can't be Paul that said this. Actually, I think it fits very well and it fits very naturally because Paul has just affirmed his love for the people in, in Rome and the good things that God is doing in the Roman church. And it's, it's fitting to give one last warning. Things are going well. Watch out. Don't let your guard down. This is not a time to give up. This is not a time to get lax. This is not a time to take things for granted. And this addendum is a massive protection of the unity of the body that explain, that's explained in the first 16 verses. And there is one thing in particular that the apostle is pointing to in these verses to watch out for, to guard against, to hold the fort against, to be defensive on, and that is false teaching. This kind of admonition is not unusual for Paul. And while his benedictions are often warm and gracious and kind and friendly, it is not at all unusual to give final warnings in his final words, even about false teaching. And and if you think about it, it's not abnormal for us either. As your teenager is headed out the door, what's the last thing you say? Drive carefully. Be safe. Be sure to come home on time. Call me if you're going to be late. Our last words are often words of warning, protection, guarding. And Paul does the same kinds of things. Consider 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. The last words of that letter. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. In his next to last letter, Titus, he says something similar in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 3. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. The very last letter that he writes, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. The last three letters that Paul wrote, All of them end with this note of be careful about false teaching. So this addendum, if you will, in Romans 16 is not at all unusual. It is typical of the Apostle Paul and it fits beautifully with everything he's already laid out in this chapter. Always, always be vigilantly attentive against false teaching. To make his point, Paul will provide us with three principles for protecting the unity of the church false teaching. Three principles to guard the church against false teaching and to protect its unity. 
The first is given to us in verses 17 and 18. And it is a problem to prevent. A problem to prevent. And the first thing he's going to tell us is, watch out for false teachers. Notice verse 17. I urge you, brothers, keep an eye open or on those who are causing dissensions. He's urging the Roman believers to do something in particular. That word urge is a, is a present tense. That means they're, they're supposed to keep on doing this. Paul, Paul is continually urging them to continually be attentive to something. There, there's a, a, a critical part of this command. It's, there's an importance to what Paul's saying. It's critical. And what is critical is, is he says, keep your eyes open. I remember the first time I was in, I think I was in like second grade. I was going to new school and we were out on the ball field and they stuck me in right field because that's where I needed to be away from balls and things because of my lack of coordination. And I remember somebody yelling out at one point, heads up. And I'm thinking, what? For what? What? Why put up my head? Bonk. Right? Didn't hit me on the head, but became clear. That's what Paul's doing here. Heads up. Watch out. Be vigilant, attentive, watch, mark, scrutinize. Be aware of anything that is aberrant. Paul is saying, don't, don't, don't take a laissez-faire attitude towards this. Don't be casual about it. They, the Romans, and we should always consider ourselves to be on guard duty, always protecting, always watching, always alert. Now, Paul doesn't call the people that he's addressing false teachers right at the beginning, but it becomes pretty clear that that's what he has in mind. Keep an eye on those who, notice how he identifies them, cause dissensions and hindrances. Dissensions are things that divide, things that are in opposition to something else. The only other time that this word is used in the New Testament is in Galatians chapter 5 as a mark of the, the fruit of the flesh. This is, this is what the flesh does. The flesh causes division. The flesh, flesh causes opposition. The flesh pushes people apart. That's fleshly work. Watch out for people who create dissensions. And then not just dissensions, but hindrances. Hindrances, that's our word stumbling blocks. We've seen that numerous times in the book of Romans. They're destructive Excuse me, destructive things that lead people to sin. Romans 14, 13, for instance. Do not let us judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I don't ever want to do anything that would put something in someone's path that would lead them to engage in some kind of sin and lead them away from Christ. Never. And there are these people that have come into the church that are creating these kinds of hindrances, stumbling blocks. They're, it's almost like they're intentionally saying, let me see how many I can make to fall. And how are they doing that? Notice what they do. They're teaching things contrary to the teaching which you have learned. These, these actions come from a lack of sound teaching. They're contrary to sound teaching. He's, he's talking when he talks about sound teaching in this verse. He's talking about things that are, that are sound, that are orthodox, things that promote spiritual life and integrity, that, that, that produce vitality of spiritual life. They're the things that have been widely considered, embraced by the church to be truth. 
They're the orthodox teachings. Chapter 6, verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So there's, there's a form of teaching that liberates you from sin and enslaves you to Christ. And that's, that's the thing that has, that has built into you, that has shaped you, that has molded you. And that's the thing that these people are moving others away from. And Paul is reminding them that false teaching inevitably will lead to dissension in the body. It will break fellowship in the body and lead people to sin. He's reminding them a little error is a major problem because it destroys people's lives. It's a hindrance. It's an obstacle. It's a barrier. He'll say something similar in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, giving an example of these kinds of false teachers. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Some will become apostate. Why? Because they've been paying attention to to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. There's a truth about what God says in this instance about marriage and food. And these have come in, they are deceived, and they are deceiving others. And it leads people astray. And you think it's just food, it's just marriage. Is it really such a big deal? It is a big deal that leads people away. It causes spiritual failure and spiritual destruction. A little error is a major problem. People make ungodly decisions about what they do because they believe error. Error always leads to falsehood and false living. False living, we might say, comes from false believing and false listening. And Paul says, brothers, keep an eye open. Watch, be attentive. Don't let your guard down. And notice as well that this is not just something for the elders. It is a task of the elders. It is a task for those who are in spiritual leaders leadership. But it's also a task for every believer. Notice what he says. Now I urge you, brethren, brothers, brothers in the Roman church, all the brothers in the Roman church, everyone who is united to Christ, watch out. This isn't just a job for the elders. It is their task. It is is their responsibility to protect the truth. But... It's also the responsibility of every member of the body. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the church is the, is the support of the truth of God. The church, not just the leadership, all the members of the church. This is, this is our task. All of us are to be attentive to this. It's a sober reminder about the cruciality of watching for erroneous teaching. Always Have your biblical and theological radar working to protect the truth. Always be listening. Is this spot on? Is this truth? Watch out for false teachers. Secondly, he says under this section, reject false teachers. Reject false teachers. 
End of verse 17. I urge you, keep your eye on them. He explains who they are. And then he says, end of the verse, and turn away from them. Don't just watch them. Get away from them. Leave them behind. That word turn away, it literally means to bend or to bend away. And it means to get away from, to shun, to remove, have no part with. And what, what does this look like? I think what the apostle would have us to understand is he's saying, don't get into debate with them. This isn't a debatable issue. This isn't something to argue about. This isn't something to have a nice discussion about, about over a cup of coffee. We reject them. We expel them. We act decisively because we need to protect the church. If we, we, we're not talking about, well, let's, let's consider, you know, there's always a grain of truth in everything. Let's, let's get the little nugget of truth out, out of this. No. We turn away from them. We reject them. Titus would say we, reject them, we cast them out of the flock. Why is this important? Again, because it's destructive to people's lives. Paul will say something very similar to the elders of the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20. As he meets with them for the last time, he says in verse 27, Acts 20, I did not shrink away from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made your overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert Watch out, because these truths are the very things that will pull people away from Christ, away from truth, away from sanctified living. It is destructive to the church and destructive to their souls. Reject them. Have nothing to do with them. Why? Because they are self-deceived. Reject false teachers because they are self-deceived. Notice verse 18. For or because... So here with that word, he's giving us a reason. Why, why do we turn, why do we watch out for them and why do we turn away from them? Because such men are slaves. Not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. Why do we turn away so decisively from them? Because they are enslaved. Now, the reality is every believer in Christ is a slave, right? We're slaves of Christ. Paul makes that so clear in chapter 6. Slavery is appropriate because, and, and he's, in, he's insinuating this in verse 18, we ought to be slaves of our Lord Christ. He's the master. He's the Lord. And he is Christ. He is, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the king. So he's the master and he's the king. We ought to be in submission to him. But these are not. They're enslaved, but they're not enslaved where they ought to be enslaved. They are enslaved and said, notice what he says, to their own appetites. That word appetites is literally the word stomach or belly. In a couple places it's translated womb, like a, a child in a woman's womb. It's, it's the internal mechanism of a person. 
And Paul is using it here not to refer to their actual stomachs. Some have suggested that he's talking about the people in chapter 14 who were eating whatever they wanted and leading to destruction of the body. And so he's talking about stomachs and what people are eating. I don't think that's what he means at all. He's using it figuratively to talk about our internal appetites, our internal desires, the things we want, the things we desire. And Paul is pointing out the fact that the origin of all ungodly behavior, all ungodly teaching is that we are believing something erroneous and that erroneous thinking leads us to ungodly desires and ungodly desires to ungodly behavior. If you were to say it, I don't know, a couple million times around here, we do what we do because we want what we want and we want what we want because we believe what we believe. Everything I do comes out of a desire. Every desire comes out of a belief system. And Paul is addressing that head on in this passage. Watch out for people with faulty desires that are rooted in faulty belief systems. They're believing the wrong thing and it's leading them and the Romans astray. We see an example of this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Because, Philippians 3.18, many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. Their God is their appetite. That's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 16. Their God is their desires. They will have what they are worshiping and desiring. And that comes from a faulty belief system. They're worshiping their desires. Their desires have ultimate authority. And in that sense... They're self-deceived. They believe that their faulty desires will give them the joy that only Christ can give them. And not only are they led astray, but they are leading others astray. Are there really people like that? (laughs) Absolutely is right. You've heard of this guy. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. And as he heard these words... Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Self-deceived. Wanted a desire. Had a desire. I want want the money and I want the, the image that I'm giving away everything. I want both. And he's self-deceived. Gives in to his desires. Or consider this man. Third John, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. 
For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. He loves to be first. That's his desire. It leads him to corrupt the truth and to destroy those who are around him. Are these kinds of people in the church? Absolutely. False teachers are to be rejected because they've taken God's truth and used it for self-indulgent purposes. They are self-deceived, filling their own bellies, not caring about others. They are distracted from Christ and they distract others from Christ. They purport to be the authority. They do not lean on Scripture. They do not lean on Christ as authoritative. And they must be rejected. Reject false teachers because they're self-deceived. Reject false teachers because they deceive others. End of verse 18. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. The problem is not just that they are self-deceived, as if that wasn't bad enough, but they are taking others with them. Now notice that what they say sounds good and right, right? They have smooth speech. They're smooth talkers. Man, they, they can turn a phrase. They're eloquent. What they say sounds right. They use flattering speech. The word flattering speech is the word from which we get our word eulogy or to eulogize. It's praising words, well-chosen words. They just, they just talk so well. But no matter how pretty the words, they're deceptive. The words are lies that lead trusting, unsuspecting, innocent people away from Christ and the truth. Notice. Verse 18, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Unsuspecting are the innocent, the guileless. We might even say the simple, perhaps the naive, not in a critical way, but they just don't know. They haven't trained yet. They haven't been taught. Perhaps they should know better. Perhaps they should have been taught. Perhaps they should have been paying attention and they weren't. I I think the sense here really is, They're in a church, they're in a good church, they think it's a safe place and they just don't have their defenses up as high as they should be. And so they're deceived. It's even worse than that. Notice that Paul says they deceive the hearts. Internally, they're deceived. Internally, in their motives, their desires, their conscience, their will, their mind, how they think. It's not just that they're led astray in doing wrong things, but internally they've changed. You've seen people like that, haven't you? That started talking about, oh, this great teacher, this great teacher, this great teacher. And then slowly, over weeks and months, you just notice... Something's amiss. It's not just what they're doing. It's how they're thinking. It's how they're relating. It's the desires they have. And they are moving inexorably away from Christ. This kind of deception is rampant. It was in that day, and it continues. Consider... Second Timothy, Paul's last letter, 
which frankly is just filled with all kinds of warnings. Chapter 2, verse 16, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Um, false teaching just spreads like a horrible illness and horrible sickness, and it's deadly. Among, their, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. They're making people hopeless. The tragedy is not just that they've destroyed their own lives, but they're destroying others as well. And this is going to proliferate in last days. That's, that's why we read chapter 3 of Second Timothy. In last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And these men are in the church. Paul says avoid them. They will destroy the church. Aren't you glad you live in the 21st century where no more false teaching exists? <laughs> oh, yeah, except for like prosperity gospel, health and wealth, right? Our best life is now. <sighs> May it not be so. Aren't you glad our best, our best life is in glory with Christ? Amen. Or how about the false gospel of easy believism? And licentious living. Just believe the gospel and do anything you want. I mean, it's always better to follow Jesus and obey Jesus and obey the word. But if you don't, it's okay. You're still, you're still safe. That dominates. That dominates in Texas. That dominates in the Bible Belt. Or what about the ineffectiveness of Scripture? I mean, the Bible's good. I mean, the stories are great. They're motivational. They're helpful. But it's unauthoritative to teach to teach and, and train and, and, and change people's lives. What we really need is psychology and what we really need is self-help and motivational messages. Amen. You go to a church and you see somebody read a scripture. And this happened to me. This happened to me at a church in Granbury, Texas, multiple years ago, but it happened here. He read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, a glorious passage. And then he took his Bible and he walked about where the sparky door is. There was a music stand and he went and put his Bible on that music stand, came back to center stage and started using a bunch of props and never talked about the Bible again. An Orthodox church in Granbury, Texas, it simply says, yeah, we believe the Bible, but they think what really changes people's lives are motivational stories and the Bible is irrelevant to it. Or what about unbelief in the historicity of Scripture? A denial of the story of Adam, for instance. In fact, this week, one of the leading apologists in the contemporary evangelical church, William Lane Craig, said, the story of Adam and Eve is just a myth. It's a motivational myth, it's a helpful myth, but it's, it's a myth. Well, if it's a myth, what happens when our sin from Adam is transferred to Christ? Is that a myth too? That's a massive problem with what you do with Romans 5. Or what about the false teaching of apostate living? Like Ravi Zacharias and Josh Harris and Abraham Piper, John Piper's son, and Tully and Chavidjan, men who have rejected the truth. And are not only, not only rejecters of Christ, but they are soliciting people to follow them away from Christ. 
The tragedy of false teachers is not just that they destroy themselves, but they take others along with them into destruction. And we must guard them, guard against them. How do we do that? Well, there is a provision that protects us. Verse 19. For the report of your obedience. The word for is a causal, which means it's because. And there's a question. How's, how's he connecting verse 19 to what precedes? For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. They're by their smooth and flattering speech. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting because of the report of your obedience. It doesn't seem to connect. And what's Paul saying? I think he's actually connecting verse 19 to the original idea in verse 17. Keep your eye on these who are leading astray. Watch out. Reject them. Because the report of your obedience has reached all. In other words, they are leading away from Christ and you are walking with Christ and I don't want you to be led away. The report of your obedience has reached all. And he's simply saying the report of your faith that is given evidence through your lives of obedience. And, and, and he's just pointing to the reality again, and he's done this all through the book, that, that when there is genuine faith, it leads to obedience in Christ. And when there's no genuine faith, it leads to disobedience away from Christ. And so he's saying, we, we know that this is the way you're living. You're living in obedience to Christ, that you have genuine faith, and we don't want you to go away from that. It's the very thing he's been saying right from the very first chapter. Speaking about Christ, verse 5, he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Christ came to make people obedient by faith. Verse 8, same chapter. First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for you all because your faith is being proclaimed through the whole world. The whole world is seeing your faith, your obedience to Christ. The book starts that way. The book ends that way. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, we protect ourselves against falsehood and error when we do, when we obey the truth. When we set our hearts to say, this is the truth of God and I'm going to obey it. That helps us to fight against false teaching and false doctrine. So that when the false doctrine comes that leads a different direction, we say, wait a minute. Christ means and His truth means I'm going to go that way, but you're telling me to go that way. That's heresy. I can't go that way. I won't go that way. The Romans had avoided that. And so Paul says, verse 19, I'm rejoicing over you. I delight in that. John would say, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. That's what Paul is saying about the Romans. I'm delighting in what you're doing. When we obey Christ, when we follow Christ, when we continue in the trajectory of truth, it brings joy to us and it brings joy to others. People look at us and say, Praise God. Faithful man. Haven't you done that? Haven't you seen somebody, you get to the end of the life? I told this to somebody recently. 
you're nearing the end of life and you're keeping the course. You're not straying. And that's an encouragement to me to stay the course as well. Paul wants them to stay in obedience. That's what they're doing. And it's producing joy in them, obviously, and joy in Paul as well. And in order to stay the course, he gives them another admonition. End of verse 19. I want you to be wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil. Wise in what is good. Wise is the application, wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's living the truth that we know. Paul is saying to them, I want you to live out and practice habitually the things that are righteously good. One theologian calls this sanctified street smarts. I like that. Sanctified street smarts. Street smarts. Unfortunately, it seems this way is in short supply. Says one cultural observer, the world has achieved brilliance without wisdom, power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. So said General Omar Bradley in 1948, 75 years ago. How much more have we strayed today? Wise in what is good, discerning in what is good, practicing what is good, embracing what is good, living out what is good, and innocent in what is evil. The word doesn't mean, the word innocent doesn't mean naive, but it means pure in relation to what is evil. You may know the things that are evil, but you're not drawn to them. You're not attracted to them. You don't do them. I think we need to limit the things that we know about what is evil as much as we can, but we live in a perverse world. We interact with perverse people, and you can't, you can't avoid knowing about some things that are evil. Limit it as much as you can. But whatever you know, don't follow it. Be innocent in regards to it. Preserve it. This is exactly what the Apostle says in 12.2, isn't it? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Innocent in what is evil because we're doing good. Our hearts should not be bent or conformed to the world, but renewed in such a way that our inclination is always towards righteous action. If you want protection from false teaching, then we need to practice doing the truth. A provision that protects you. What's going to protect you from falsehood and false teaching and erroneous teaching? Doing the truth. Just make your heart set on obeying the Lord. I got to this part and I just thought, man, that's tough. I mean, we're getting to the end of Romans and it's kind of heavy. I want you to notice, lastly, a preview of a promise. Watch out for false teachers. Keep working hard on your faith. Verse 20, And remember, the God of peace will soon crush 
Satan under your feet. (laughs) Woo-hoo! Amen. Brothers and sisters, the God whose nature is peace will bring about peace on this earth through the destruction of Satan. What's interesting about this verse, you, you know, you think the God of peace, the God of peace. God is, God is loving, God is peaceable. He is not a God of war. Oh, friends, He's a God of war. And He wins. In fact, what's interesting is I, as I read this verse, you, you don't get it in the English, but in the Greek, the word peace is followed immediately by the word crush. Our peace comes through the crushing of Satan. That word crushing means to trample, to run over, to obliterate, to wipe out. And it's a future tense, which in this context means there's a certainty it will happen. There's no going back. There's no avoiding it. And brothers and sisters, I want you to notice the timing. It will happen soon. Now, Paul wrote this about 2,000 years ago. And you go, doesn't sound soon to me. But Paul says it's coming imminently. This last week, I celebrated the 30th anniversary of my 29th birthday. I'll see if you can do the math. And the first time I celebrated that, life seemed so long. Now, having done it 30 times, life seems so short, doesn't it? Those of you who are ahead of me can say amen. It's short. Our time here is going quickly. And I think Paul also would have us to think about this, that as Peter says, in the economy of God, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. It's only a couple days since Paul wrote this. It's coming soon, brothers. When you get into eternity, I think about this all the time. And the things that are a heartache to you, the things that are a struggle to you, the, the sin that you're fighting against that is so weighty against you, the relationships that are so difficult, the, the, the strains and the burdens of physical illness and physical pain that are just weigh on you. 10,000 years from now, It'll be like nothing. And eternity won't even be, have begun in 10,000 years. It's coming soon, brothers. Satan's not one. It's just the briefest blip in the history of God that he has been able to fight against him. It's coming, and it's coming soon. Which is also a reminder, don't, don't engage in it. Anything that you engage in that comes from Satan and his realm is destined to end quickly. Why embrace in something that will be destroyed so soon? It is also notable to us, we must note this, that we are not the ones who crush Satan. God is the one who does it. God destroys. We, we have no power over Satan. But God does. And He will crush him and He will destroy him. But then I've tried to emphasize this by the way I've read it. But He will crush him so that we will walk on Him. He's under our feet. He's under our dominion, as it were. 
We're not controlled by Him. We're not subject to Him. He is subject to God. He is destroyed by God. And we are not overwhelmed by Him. God is victorious over the enemy and we get the spoils. That's a good deal. I don't have time. But I just was thinking this week, how will Satan be destroyed and crushed? What will Satan lose when he is crushed? He'll be bound and cast into eternal hell under God's unrelenting wrath. He will be rendered powerless against believers. Sin will be destroyed. He will be incapable of tempting and leading believers astray. His false light will be extinguished. His false ideologies will be exposed and eliminated. The death that comes from sin will be vanquished. The fallenness of creation will be restored. Everything that comes from Him and through Him will be destroyed and we will be freed from all of it. We live in a really perverse world. And it will all be crushed with Satan. Which is why I think Paul, even though he's not yet finished, just jumps into this benediction of grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. That's a prayer request and it's a delight. God's grace is going to sustain you in this first world where false teachers even are coming into the church to lead you astray. The grace of God will keep you and sustain you and hold you. Don't fear. It's a promise. When you're faced with opposition and people will tempt you and attempt to deceive you and lead you astray, God will give you the grace you need to obey and follow Him. Isn't it true when things are going well, there's a temptation to relax? To be a little less vigilant? (laughs) Every once in a while, I'll say to Ray Jean, you know, things are, marriage seems to be going pretty well. We seem to be pretty happy. Things are going well. She'll just look at me and say, don't, don't, don't say that. (laughs) Right? That's the moment. It's like, man, it's almost setting you up to just have a big fight that night. Things are going well. We're less attentive to our spouse. We prepare less for discipling and counseling. We spend less time praying in dependence on God. We have a greater willingness to be accepting and tolerant of unbiblical viewpoints. We're prone to being too confident in ourselves. We're more likely to assume that things will always be good and always be easy. We're less likely to plan for the future. The Roman church was doing well. Brothers and sisters, I believe our church is doing well. We're healthy. We're not perfect by a long stretch, but we're healthy. We're strong. And Paul's well-timed words at the end of this letter are an appropriate and sober reminder. This is no time to relax. It is time to be attentive, vigilant, watchful, persevering for anything that might distract us from a single-minded devotion to Christ. Father, would you work that in us? It's a sobering reminder at the end of an amazingly gracious, hopeful book that we have heard today. 
And it might be tempting for us to say, well, it's all going well. We're healthy, we're strong, we're vibrant, we're growing. We're growing in Christ-likeness. Oh, Father, in this day, perhaps especially so, we must be vigilant for Christ. Vigilant for the truth. Watchful for error. Always bending away from and throwing out that which is erroneous will lead us away from Christ. Even as we're going to be reminded in just a moment, everything we have in this world is because of Christ. He's our hope. He's our confidence. He's our joy. He's everything. And we do not want to be distracted from Him. So make us bold. Make us watchful. Make us vigilant. And make us hopeful in the crushing of Satan and the victory of Christ. It is in His name that we pray. Amen.